so we're gonna we're gonna meet together. I'm gonna meet with you um, six times this spring. And so what I what I really want to focus on through that thematically is um, salvation. So the gospel, the things of the gospel. So where I want to start is <clears throat> we won't spend the whole day here. I don't think there's a whole world here, but. Um, what it means that Jesus Christ is that one mediator between God and man. And I want to go right into, we'll start this today. We won't finish it, but we'll start it. Um, that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. What does that mean? Because what that does is it, it actually gives content and shape, right? And here we, we can think about Jesus Christ as our, our intercessor, right? That one who ever lives to make uh, intercession and advocacy for us. Well, what, you know, what's, the, what's the shape of that? What's the stuff of that? He does this as prophet, priest, and king. But he doesn't do it apart from us, or, or distance from us, remote from us. Actually, this gives shape to who the church is, right? The church is prophetic, priestly, royal. And so when we're talking about who Jesus Christ is for us, we're at one and the same time talking about what does it mean um, that the church, we individually and we as a body are members of his body, <clears throat> and we have a prophetic, priestly, royal ministry. It's wonderful stuff. And then... From there, next couple of times, we'll talk about um, what, it, what union with Christ means, what it means to be in Jesus Christ far and away. That is the, the um, predominant language of the New Testament. 265 times, I believe, um, Scripture talks about us being in Jesus Christ. And then all that that means for, for being redeemed in Jesus Christ, justified, made, you know, made holy, um, adopted, what it means to be children of the living God, and so on and so forth. So that's what we'll do this, this spring, or at least, you know, when I'm here. Sound good? I'm praying one more time, so the Lord be with you. <clears throat> living Jesus Christ, uh, we commend ourselves um, without pretense, but boldly, because you've bid us to come, and so we give ourselves to you and put ourselves and trust ourselves into your high priestly hands, which are always faithful, never failing. We ask that you would Bring us eternal word to where you have always been in the bosom of your Father, and that you would teach us in the power of the Spirit, as only you can do, triune God, uh, that in Jesus Christ, being included in him and grafted into him, we are loved by you, Father, um, with the same love that you love that Son who you are forever pleased with, and we are accepted in the Beloved. Uh, and delighted in, in the beloved. All that is Christ is ours. Would you free us from any encumbrance um, to living into the fullness of what is most fundamentally true of us? Would you bless us and keep us um, this day? We ask in Christ's name, amen. Um, so let's do the allergy party. I'm right at the top here. Um, let's start here, First uh, Timothy 2.5. <clears throat> Anything you want to say about what it means to belong to the triune God and Jesus Christ is here. There's a whole world here. There's one God. Right? There's not many gods, but one and one mediator. Not many, but one. There's one mediator between God and man who is the man, Christ Jesus. Let's unpack that for just a minute. Right off the bat, notice this. That mediation is not one directional, it's by. Right? Jesus Christ is the, the fullness of the life and the light of God to us, right? Enacting the fullness of God's will and character to us. And we'll unpack that. But that's not nearly enough. <laughs> we actually need to be powerfully brought to God. 
right? Jesus Christ is the perfect human response to God who fulfills all righteousness for us that we now participate in and live in. <clears throat> and that too, when we talk about what it means to belong um, to the Father as his children, living members of Jesus Christ, it's, it's just endlessly important because if we, if we miss that, what Jesus actually becomes is the true God who comes near us never to touch us and then, and then just to throw you back on your own resources, right? He's actually not sufficient. He's just an agent or a condition of your salvation, but we're, we're talking about something way bigger and grander than that. <clears throat> and look what the apostle does. The man, Christ Jesus, right? That mediator, that one between God and man, not just from to, but between is the man. Everything that, that God does to us and for us and with us in Jesus Christ, he does as a divinely human action. <laughs> really, really important. Um, we never want to in any way undermine or lessen in any sense that Jesus Christ is wholly human. Because if he can't as wholly human participate in the life of God, we can't either, <laughs> right? It actually necessitates that we that, that our goal is to become transhuman or you know depart from our humanity somehow. And the gospel is just so incredibly affirming of our humanness. One mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Now let's unpack this a little bit. What isn't what's a mediator? We can say a go-between, right? One who brings together, binds together. Um, parties that were not, you know, up to this point, formerly were not in union and communion. Now, in this case, we're talking about parties who, it's not as though they didn't have relationship or even don't up to this point, but that relationship is marked by rupture, disruption, um, enmity, you know, biblical words, alienation, estrangement, hostility, right? Two parties who were formerly um, not in communion, but, that, but the relationship that is. We always have a relationship with God, right? And we talk like that. Do you have a relationship with You do, because you're a creature. Of course you do. Um, it's marked by estrangement. Our Lord is, as mediator, overcoming all of these things. So what does that require? What does what, a mediator, what's required of a mediator? That they have real... Um, identification with, skin in the game, you might say, right? Real identification with um, both parties at one and the same time, right? Real skin in the game with both so that they can care for, maintain, advance the interests of, um, represent, so on and so forth. Jesus Christ is fully immersed at one and the same time in the life of God and the being of God and the life and being of humanity. Right? He really is truly in solidarity with us, one of us who does all things um, for us as one of us to make them ours. Let's think about this for a minute because I think we tend to get some of these things off just a little bit. What are we saying Jesus is not? He's not an intermediary. Um, huge difference between mediator and intermediary. Right? If you think about you know, legal counseling, those are intermediaries. I grew up in Detroit, so... Um, you know, when Ford Motor Company has a problem with United Auto, Auto Workers Union, right, the UAW, they bring in intermediaries, not mediators, people who don't have skin in the game either way, 
right? So we're, we're certainly not saying Jesus is an intermediary, one who actually is not a part of the life of God or us and therefore can be a third party. I'm not saying that. He's truly, fully um, that one who is God with man on behalf of God. Um, humanity, man with God on behalf of man. That, he's mediator. We're not saying this, that Jesus Christ is a, a really kindly, gentle, loving son who ameliorates his crusty, crummy dad, right? I think that's huge in the church. I really do. I think it's huge. And it's really pastorally cruel, right? I had a student once who was saying that she was at a play, you know, at church, and uh, the play starts out, and it's this, this penitent, you know, stretched out on the floor, pleading with God, the penitent's in white, and then there's someone walking around the penitent saying, no, no, you know, I refuse, um, contending with this penitent, and she thought, oh, it's the, you know, diabolos, it's the, the accuser of the brethren, right, it's Satan, so it turns out, it's the father, <laughs> the penitent is the son, the, the resistant one is the father, right? So we're talking about um, two gods, if you will, with two different characters contending against one another, Jesus trying to overcome something that his father is unwilling to do. It's not what we're talking about, right? In fact, what, what we want to get here is there's nothing that Jesus Christ is or does that his father is not unwilling and, and, and is and does. So Jesus Christ really is enacting the will of the Father, right? If you see me, you see my Father. He's enacting the will of his Father. Um, for God, in this case, the Father so loved the world, right, that he sent the Son. He doesn't send out of deficit. He's not motivated by anything, in fact, but love. Um, and even when we talk about um, Jesus Christ, you know, obedient unto death, this sacrificial self-offering that he gives. It's the Father who first sacrifices, right? In the giving of his son, at infinite, you know, um, torment to himself. He gives the son, right? Before the son offers himself, it's the Father giving the son. So we want to make sure we get that. <clears throat> Jesus isn't putting a kindly face on, a, on, a, on a, another deity who is behind his back and over his head and who might just be monstrous. Just when we do that in the church, we're in real trouble. Does that make sense to you guys? Do you want to say anything so far? Allison? I, I, see, I see you pondering. Yes, I'm pondering. I was thinking about, yeah, just turning this over. Okay. Yeah, so, so you know, we, I, I actually want to walk through that. Um, it's just so much there. Um, but when you, th when you think about that, right, this one uh, who ever lives to make intercession for us, what, what, what might that look like, right? Is he the eternal, um, prostrate, um, plebeian? Is he, is he that one? Or does he come before the Father, 
you know, bedecked in the grandeur of his death and resurrection, right? Like this, right? As, by the way, God to God, right? We're not sub-Trinitarian people. So, you know, the, the same kind of dis-ease that's here is the same kind of thing that says, well, the, the father's kind of abusive of the son, and the son's kind of, you know, um, under the, the thumb of the father and this kind of thing. So it's actually sub-Trinitarian stuff. The son as holy and fully God, right? Um, there's all kinds of wonderful paradox there. So when you think about, you know, the scene, right? Who, who's the strong one that can open the scroll in Revelation? There he is, right? It's a bloodied lamb, right? Who, who's, who's the strong one? The one who is, who is um, almightily vulnerable, <laughs> overcomes all things by his suffering, right? By the way, huge for the church, unless we're going to be triumphalistic, right? What is, what, is true, what is true of our Lord is going to be true of us on mission with him. But it's not, it's, 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 not, it's nothing that would speak to um, divisiveness or contrariness in the, in the triune life of God, nothing like that. Now here, when we're talking about mediation, <clears throat> this too is really important. Jesus Christ is our substitute, right? All that he does, he does for us. And I want to really drive that home in just a minute. But he's not a substitute in such a way that he's a buffer between us and God, right? A mediator isn't a buffer. Um, <clears throat> and he's not a, a type of, he's not a mediator or a buffer that would be our savior that makes us spectators in our salvation, right? What he's actually doing is, um, he, is he is our incarnate substitute in whom we participate. And so this is what we got to get at when we talk about mediation. Being in Jesus Christ, all that he has done and is for us, he shares with us, right? We don't just observe or he doesn't fulfill conditions and then give, you know, part out to us commodities. We're talking about a Lord in whom we participate. It's just huge, right? It's, it's huge in every way. It's even huge, like say, hermeneutically, exeget how you read the Bible, when you, when, you know, how you take in teaching and things like that. What we're not doing is trying to um, get principles and learn how to apply them at distance from our Lord, right? That, that's like motivational seminar weekend stuff, Tony Robbins stuff. Um, what we're actually doing is in, in apostolic prophetic witness, we're being, we're being taken up and lifted up into the life and mission of God. We're participating, right? Of course, there's cognitive dimensions to that in teaching. Of course there is. Um, but we're not at distance plucking propositions and trying to apply them, right? So, so even in the way we read the Bible, this, this, this makes, um, this is just huge. A substitute, <clears throat> because who he is and what he does, we cannot do and cannot be. But we cannot do and be as, as living members of Jesus Christ at distance from him. We must participate. Our, our lives must be lived out of his. <clears throat> so let's talk about that. I think we, we have, but I want to, we have at different points, but I want to just run through this a little bit. All that he does, he does for us and for our salvation, right? So when we, when we talk about belonging to Jesus Christ, what, what does that entail? Uh, yes, right? It entails everything. He's born for us. Think about this, you guys. He's conceived from above by the Spirit. And by the way, born anew. The, one, the eternally existent second person of the Trinity is born again of the Virgin, right? By the power of the Spirit. 
He tells Nicodemus, you must be born from above by the Spirit or you cannot enter the kingdom, right? Is he born for us? <laughs> does, he, does he engage sin right at the fountainhead of sin, as it were? Right? Where, did, where did you become a sinner? <laughs> right from the get-go, right? Does Jesus Christ address that? He does. Um, by the way, we'll press, it, press this out a little bit. He's born from above and conceived in the, in the womb of a virgin, right? So are we, Holy Mother Church, right? So are we um, for us and for our salvation. His whole life is one of hearing the word. Lent is Ash Wednesday is coming up, right? So this is talking about 40 days in the wilderness. Think about this. Jesus Christ is baptized. He takes on, talk about identification, he takes on a baptism of repentance for the people of Israel, right? So closely does he identify with them. <clears throat> from Jordan to Golgotha is that. It's that one perfect human response to God, right? Right under the conditions of all that, that ails us. What does, what does he hear in the waters of baptism? You are my son with whom I am well pleased. Who does he hear it for? You ever think about that? Us, right? He hears for us when we can't hear and brings us into the realities of this. Who is Ellison? You are my son with whom I am well pleased in Jesus Christ, right? He takes that baptismal identity um, that is ours out into the wilderness and bests and overcomes every ailment, right? And then presses in all the way to Golgotha, all the way there. Now think about that. What, what, does, he, what does he do? <clears throat> he drinks to the dregs, right? Um, to the dregs. Um, all the or disorder and chaos of a fallen world. Um, bear truly bears our guilt, truly bears our shame to bear it away. Truly undergoes the abyss of death. So in all of these things, don't, don't ever think that the, 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 like the temptation of Jesus or the death of Jesus is less than ours because he's the second person of the Trinity. It's more, it's more, right? None of us are ever gonna be asked to um, drink to the dregs the disorder and chaos of the cosmos, right? We must die in him, but we can't die that death. <clears throat> Only he can. Um, none of us has been tempted like our Lord. His isn't less, his is actually more, right? And he, by the way, he actually resists it. He's not looking for any safety valves. Um, the death he dies, <clears throat> he really dies, right? He really goes into the abyss of the judgment of God with the dereliction on his lips, right? My God, my God. To the dregs for us and for our salvation, right? Now think about the resurrection. <clears throat> what, what goes, what, what's happening in the resurrection? That, by the way, first happens to Jesus and then us and him, right? Death no longer, says Paul in Romans, death no longer has dominion over him. Death isn't that strong man because death, the, the, the grip of death has been broken in Jesus Christ, right? He's touched our death and transformed it. Death no longer has dominion on him when the power of death's broken. 
does he enter into and submit himself to the power of death? Yes, right? The resurrection is the release of guilt and shame, right? Because Jesus Christ really bore it. If he didn't really bear it, then have fun. It's your, it's on you, right? <clears throat> it's the release, right, of guilt and shame. Um, it is the acceptance by the Father into life incorruptible, right? And that first happens to Jesus. If, if we pull Jesus apart from us, sometimes we'll tend to think, well, he's God, so none of, I mean, none of that's real, right? I mean, he doesn't really bear our guilt and shame and so on and so forth. No, no, he really does. And this first happens in his life so that in union with, with him, it can happen in our lives. Whatever doesn't, whatever doesn't first happen to him, if he's a mediator, he's working out our salvation in his very being and then sharing with us all that he is. He's not fulfilling conditions and then leaving gifts on a doorstep at distance from us. All that he is, <clears throat> we, take, we take part in. So what is, what is you know, our being raised with Jesus Christ? The death he died is a true dying to sin, and our death in him is a true dying to sin. The life he lives, he now lives unto the Father evermore incorruptible. And so do we release guilt, shame, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Um, there is no separate, Romans 8 stuff, right? <clears throat> there is no separation because we're partaking in the mediator. Now, he makes a new and living way of access in his body, right? Ascension stuff. A new and living way of access in his body into the Holy of Holies, the bosom of his Father, to bring us to where he has ever been. Now, this is, this is mystagogical stuff, as you guys know, right? Paul says, we're seated in the heavenlies in Jesus Christ. Not eschatologically, right? The fullness of that comes now, right now. <clears throat> A new and living way of access in his body. And think about the way in which our Lord presents us as high priest. Not like this, like this, right? The priests of old, precious stones here right in the ephod here jesus christ bears us up before his father not 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 in a burlap sack like in his back pocket or something right out front like this the the, the trophies right of my high priestly offering purified precious precious the father beholds us in jesus christ and all that is true of jesus christ <clears throat> is true of us in him that's hard, man, that's, <laughs> that'll take forever, right? So, you know, how loved is Lydia by the Father? Well, how loved is Jesus by the Father? It's not, I behold my son, and then, and then in some second-rate way, I behold you over here and begrudgingly accept you, accepted in the beloved, right? Um, how, how, what kind of delight does the Father have in us? He looks at the son and does this, and looks at Allison and says, Fine, fine. But we think like that. We do. We think like that. Um, all that Jesus Christ renders to the Father, he renders ours. Right? So now when we're, when we're talking about what the Christian life means, both of these are true of us at the same time. You're perfect in Jesus Christ. That will be. You are. Right? So this isn't the posture of the Christian life. The sweating meritocracy. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. 
no, you're not, right? You are, you are with you know, all proactive intentionality living into and out of the life of Jesus Christ and being sanctified. You aren't working on it as though you're trying to cap off that which isn't sufficient, right? You, you are in him, you are. That's already true, right? In yourself, you're, you're a wreck. <laughs> but here's the point. You are never to contemplate yourself in yourself because that's fundamentally what isn't true of you. You are never in and of yourself, right? You're never to contemplate Jesus Christ afar off because that's not who he is. He's, he's the, one, the head of the body. So in, you know, in, if we could put it corporately, if we, to whatever extent we do that, this is what we're saying about Jesus Christ. He's a dismembered monstrosity, the Christ without a body, and the body is a de decapitated monstrosity, a fetid corpse, right? That's never true. The Jesus Christ, the incarnate one, is always the Jesus Christ with his people. We are a people with our head and Lord. Never to be, never, never do we cardin ourselves off and leave, that, that's the playground of the devil, right? So all those things, this is what we want to be talking about in terms of, um, in terms of um, the, the mediation of Jesus Christ. We're participating in him in all of those ways. Let me say a few things here. What we're affirming, what this affirms, and what's, you know, when we talk about the gospel, we, we've just got to be affirming these all the time. Jesus Christ or will affirm his essential godness, right? He's the whole fullness of God. He's not, a, not an aspect or a fraction or, you know, a vague, you know, um, revelation of God. He's the fullness of God. The whole fullness of God's triune deity dwells bodily in Jesus Christ. There's no, no God behind his back that, that he's capping off because we never consider him apart from the Father and the Spirit either, right? It's the whole fullness of God to us contrary or contra to Arianism. I'm going to talk about a few heresies here because they're not kind of historical tidbits. They're actually moods that are always, they're always with us. They're always lapping. Arianism's always lapping at the church and to whatever extent it's there, what we're actually doing is plucking, as it were, plucking Jesus Christ out of the life of God. As soon as you do that, it's over, right? It's over. There, there, there's no, there is no gospel. There is no real sense of church, there's, it's over. We are affirming Jesus Christ's essential humanness. He's really human and his essential creatureliness, right? Over and against all kinds of like docetic, you know, Apollinarianism or, do you guys know who Menno Simons is? Reformation, Anabaptist stuff? Menno Simons. Menno Simons? So let me hit both of these. They're not quite the same, right? Jesus Christ is truly human. Among other things, what are we saying? Well, we're saying, we're saying this. His body is the most real of all bodies. It belongs to the second person of the Trinity. Anything you ever want to say that's true about your body starts with your rightly discerning his body. His body is the demarcation between imaginary and real bodies, right? <laughs> um, it, it's not in any way that would start the other way around. Um, to, to, to be progressing into Jesus Christ is to be moving toward the telos of what humanity is made to be, right? 
Um, so we, we don't move from you know, less human to more human. We, we move from inauthentic humanness to authentic humanness in Jesus Christ. Um, so against all that kind of thing, but then, but then creatureliness, this is really important too. There's been people in the history of the church that said, well, he, he's really human, but it's, it's humanity. You know, it's, it's, it's like celestial flesh. It just kind of comes, it come, he just kind of tumbles through the Blessed Virgin, right? Without ever touching anything. He doesn't get contaminated. Um, he's really and truly creaturely, right? Jesus Christ is human and creaturely. He, he takes on creatureliness because he's redeeming creatureliness. He's bringing earth and heaven together, right? Humanity and God together. So, you know, ancients used to talk about all kinds of stuff that we would just think, what on earth, you know? Um, was Jesus, was, was the second person of the Trinity a conceived egg attached to a uterine wall, you know, in, in uh, um, gestational juice, <laughs> fluids? Yes, right, yes. Oh, he's really creaturely, he's really that. He's redeeming and, by the way, affirming the creatureliness of us. Why is that so important? Well, among other things, what we're affirming is our real humanness and our real creatureliness, and we're, we're affirming it, right, against Gnosticism, which is always, again, lapping at, lapping at the church. It's a mood. It doesn't necessarily look like ancient stuff, but it looks like this. I hate the mundane. I'm looking, I'm looking for constant um, release from the mundane, right? I'm looking for self-definition. I'm looking to break every, every kind of boundary that I might see as... Um, holding me back, um, and I'm into self-declaration and self-determination and self-definition and all of that. His body is the most real of all bodies. <laughs> His body discerns your body. His creatureliness discerns your creatureliness, affirms it, liberates it. It's the best thing you could ever be is to be human and fully so, and fully alive in Jesus Christ. The best thing you could ever be. Even better, than, I wouldn't want God's job. I would be a human in Christ. No, but you see my point. It's the best thing. All of these things were affirming. And then this, you guys, well, a couple of things. The, the real Jewishness of Jesus Christ. To think about the real humanness of Jesus Christ. We're talking about the real Jewishness of Jesus Christ. That, too, is a mood that laps at the church all the time, right? To, to pluck Jesus Christ out of the life of God here, humanity here, or, by the way, the life of Israel, right? So he, he becomes, well, for us, cardigan Jesus, something like that. 20th century German, Germany, Aryan Jesus, right? The mediator to Adolf Hitler, something like that. He's fulfilling Israel's mission, really important, so that he can have significance, so that he can fulfill, right, that, that promise to Abraham, really, really important, a blessing to the nations, the cosmos. <clears throat> and when we affirm that, that we are participants, not spectators, par participating in the mediator, what we're affirming is um, that as real humans, we really participate in the life of God and we really partake of the divine nature, which for lots of, lots of modern Christians, that gets them real squeamish, real, real squeamish. They're into abstracted, transactional types of um, ways of understanding the Christian life. So what are we saying? Humans can and do, first in Jesus, real humans really 
participate in the life of God, right? Because Jesus did, we can. We're not looking to transcend our humanness. Um, if we can't partake in the life of God, we have no life in us. All we, all we can do then is reduce the Christian life to self-helps to try to augment our own natural life, right? Does that make sense? What we're never becoming is God, right? We're not saying we get deified. Um, we're not saying we're divinized, but we are saying uh, that there's a real participation in the divine nature. We are saying that. Humans do, not only do, but must for to have any life in us. That must happen. All of those things we're saying when we, when we talk about the mediation of Jesus Christ, now we can start pressing into salvation. So what, what's the goal here? What does is, what is the mediation of Jesus Christ accomplish and what do we want to parse out? Peace. Right? Not this. Not like peace out. Shalom. Right? Rich, deep stuff. What does he take away? Let's think of it in terms of, you know, um, what, it, what, it, what is removed and what is affirmed and brought into being. The absence of hostility, right? Shalom entails the absence of hostility. God is not hostile toward us. Now be honest, do you guys ever think God's hostile to you? God's not. Now, we can grieve God, break his heart, right? Um, we can feel, we can feel um, tension in relationship, for sure. God's not hostile to us, right? Shalom, hostility is removed. It's the absence, shalom entails the absence of hostility, which means we never need be afraid, right? The, the servile fear, that kind of criminality type of fear. Need to fear the Lord, right? Reverence, awe. Um, but that's that's what children do to with a good father, right? Do that. No guilt. We need to parse this out a little bit. There's 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 that sense of right as Jesus says to Peter, I've, I've, "You've already been washed. I'm going to wash your feet." Right? Um, we repent every Sunday and hopefully in between too, right? Um, <clears throat> But we're talking about that which is present and unremitting, right? A walk, that which you're walking in. The shalom of Jesus means the removal of guilt. He's really born and born away our guilt. There is no guilt. That's tremendously liberating, right? Tremendously so. <clears throat> and progressively doing that. So one day, won't this be awesome? One day all of us will live in for the first nanosecond of our existence, the utter, you know, human existence utterly devoid of fear and shame and guilt. And we've, we've never even been there that long, not fully. And we don't even know what that feels like yet. Right? We, don't even, we don't even know. We've, none of us have that experience. But that's what, that's, what is, that's what is instantiated right now. We have a taste of it, for sure, right? and we're moving into the fullness of it. The peace of God. No exposure to the retributive, you know, retributive type of wrath of God, none. None. What we have is um, real parental, loving, 
discipline, which is good. Doesn't always feel good, but it's good. Which is categorically different than retributive wrath, right? Are, would you guys agree that, I mean, that, like, like living into that, I mean, that, that's the stuff of the Christian life, right? Getting, getting away from kind of those broken spectral notions you have of God as, as the God who is not for you but against you. <laughs> the God who is and does stand against you and hostile to you and all these things. None of it's true. In Jesus Christ, it's absolutely, utterly groundless. Right? All of these things gone. What does peace entail? The presence of shalom. What is it um, that we live in forgiveness? Right? Not, not neutrality. It's way better than that. Acceptance in the beloved. Joyful acceptance, right? The father who runs out to meet us. You know, prodigal son and daughter type stuff. Real koinonia. Real fellowship with God. Again, man, you know, for our, for our own culture, that's hard stuff, right? Because, and it's hard just for, you know, fallen human nature. Because you guys know, right? It's, it's generally true. We generally think like this. The more anybody knows me, the less they're going to like me. <laughs> Don't you guys ever feel like that? What is true of us in Jesus Christ and the shalom of God that he brings us is the one who knows you best loves you most. Not because he doesn't see, right? Because he's bound in love, right? Um, love is not blind like Chesterton is so good to say. We say that all the time. God isn't blind to, you know, even the things that we struggle with right now. He sees them better than we do. But what love is, is it's bound, right? Um, God's, God's holy love for us doesn't blind him to, what, to what's true of us. He sees it and knows us best and loves us most. There's real koinonia in peace. There's real freedom, right? Not, not archaic freedom, not anarchic freedom. But you're really free to be an authentic human being now. <laughs> Which you, by the way, are not outside of Jesus Christ. You are not free to be an authentic human being. You're actually free to be who you are in Jesus Christ, made an image to be. That's, that's what the peace of God does. <clears throat> and we live now in the permanent assurance of personal acceptance, right? That's, that too is what shalom is. Now think, of, I mean, think about the way all relationships go, right? <clears throat> who do I want to use here? You guys, you, you know Anne of Green Gables, right? one of my favorite movies. Um, Marilla puts her on trial, right? Yeah, Marilla, oh gosh. What to, what to make of her? She's lovely and horrible, um, aren't we all? Um, but she puts her on trial, right? It, if you're put on trial, you're in, you're, first of all, you're fundamentally dishonest and you're insane, right? You're, un, you're insanous, you're unhealthy, you can't be anything else. Could you imagine if your parents said to you, your bags are packed, they're right by the front door. Every time you make me mad, I'll just put them six inches closer to the door until one day they'll be out the door. Bye-bye. Right? You're on permanent trial. You'd be fundamentally dishonest <clears throat> or despairing, right? Or both. Think about marriage. Right? What, are, what are marital vows? Um, I will love you 
um, and I will love none like you ever. Whoever, whoever you are at 70, whoever I am at 70 is gonna love whoever you are. That's pretty bold stuff, right? Not, oh, let's see how it goes. Let's see how, you, how the years treat you, how you hold up, and uh, let's just keep it at that. I'll keep you, you know, nice and, nice and spry and fearful, and that'll work out best. You, you commit to each other right there, and then you turn around and walk into your life, right? Because if that's not there, you actually you can't have an authentic relationship, right? Um, if there's not if there's not love and acceptance right there, all a relationship can be is you know scurrying along the shadows of life and lying to one another. Jesus Christ in the peace of God says, <clears throat> permanent acceptance, right? That's the datum point of the whole Christian life. You are accepted in the beloved. You you are accepted by the Father in the same way as Jesus Christ is accepted by the Father because it's not apart from him, it's in him and with him. You're included in him. Now walk in freedom and peace and shalom, right? That's what we're talking about with the mediation of Jesus Christ. It's inconceivably good news, right? Okay, what do you guys want to say? You don't have to say anything. Did you say that, that um, we, through Christ we, um, we, have, we are able to experience shalom now, you said? Or? Absolutely. So the whole, the whole Christian life is this, right? Let's talk about hope, right? Now, you know, hope in, hope in football, right? Two-minute warning or six seconds left, you know, at the 50-yard line is, I'm going to throw a Hail Mary, and I, I hope, you know, someone on my team comes down with this ball. Christian life isn't hope like that, right? Christian life is the affirmation of what is now true in light of the anticipation or moving toward the anticipation of the full manifestation of what is now true, right? So think about the resurrection. We live in between two resurrections, right? Not just Christ and then ultimately ours, Christ and ours, right? You have been raised from the dead your resurrection is a participation in his, and so now it's patterned after his, which means there was a true death to sin in your life. You actually have been judged, right? All of those things. You have been made a new creation. So Paul says now, in hope, we can say we're hoping for the resurrection of the body. We're hoping for the full manifestation of what is already true, right? Inaugurated, but not brought to its fullness. Right, so <clears throat> that's, that's the way scripture talks, which is just, well, you wanna talk about stretching for us. You have been glorified, <laughs> right? And you look in the mirror every day and say, really? <laughs> right, Th this, is, this is the tension. It's not a balance, it's a tension. You look in the mirror, every, you wake up and, and you think, you know, these are the 8,000 things I'm supposed to do today. These are the ways I'm failing and falling short. You think like that, right? This is, this is what's true of us, fundamentally. Um, <clears throat> you are a living member of Jesus Christ. Um, all that is his is yours. You are, God made all things through and for Jesus Christ, and he is heir of all things, and with him we are co-heirs of all things. Right? 
that's a pretty bright future, <laughs> right? And it's true of you now. Um, we, don't t we don't tend to think about what's fundamentally true of us, right? So, th so this is so much of the Christian life, inhabiting that tension and moving into and learning how to live into that which is, that which is true, right? Which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and difficult to enter into even the minds of us because there's nothing really to compare it to. These are the things we want to set our minds upon, right? Lift up your hearts. Set your minds on things above. Um, so all of those things are true now. I mean, maybe I can say it like this. See if this helps. I, I grew up in stuff like this, and you wouldn't at res, but I think probably lots of you have. You think about the Christian life in terms of historical events. Jesus did die a long time ago. Jesus did stuff around us a long time ago. He's not here now. But, you know, he did all that stuff. He raised from the dead. And we know eschatologically one day, you know, our future is bright. So we have a historical Christian life and an eschatological Christian life that we think is just future. But we don't have a present Christian life, <laughs> right? We don't have that. Um, <clears throat> what, what hope or, you know, this tension is what we're saying is we're, we're actually inhabiting the now and the not yet right now. You have been raised. You have been glorified. You are seated in the heavenlies in Jesus Christ right now, right? So on and so forth. Can we, you know, if we're ending, like, you know, what Jesus is doing now, he, he, he opens up a way in his body um, into the very bosom of his father, not as a private person, right, uh, secluded from us, um, but to bring us with him, right? <clears throat> yeah. 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 Yep. Is there is there still a sort of punishment, or are we still subject to the curses of wrong behavior when we are living <clears throat> And would that be would would that sort of punishment for wrong behavior fall into that sort of retributive wrath, or is the So what I mean when when I talk about retributive wrath, like the death penalty is retributive wrath, right? the gallows pole or the, you know, the guillotine that's saying, I'm not hoping for restitution, right? Or anything remedial, rem that which brings about remedy. You're just getting whacked, right? That's it. <clears throat> when we talk about, you know, that which is remedial, that which is to, 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 which has a goal of restoration, healing, right? So does God, because he loves us, um, deal with us? So d does God take us to the woodshed? He does. And, you know, do we scream and wail sometimes and resent it? We do. Um, does God ever meant to, ever mean to um, wound us for the sake of wounding us? Or does he, does he ever in, in these things wound us to heal us? Severe mercies, things like this, right? So I wouldn't want to take out the, the teeth of that because Moderns do that enough, right? The way we think about love is so impotent. That's why, you know, we, we go into the world and we're talking about the way God loves and people are like, who cares? 
Seriously, you talk about God like he's a love-starved lapdog somewhere, you know, wetting himself for affection. God is not that, right? Um, his love is just strong. He comes after us, and so there is that. And our, um, our defiance wounds the heart of God, right? That's Grieves terrible. the heart of God. So me, let's put it like this, because we we're talking about, think about marriage. My wife and I fight sometimes. <clears throat> what I don't think there is, great, it's, it's over, we have to get remarried, right? Of, of, you know, th this tension in the relationship is constitutive of a divorce, right? So we have to keep doing that. Now it hurts, right? And you can feel things like, you guys, you guys know what it's like to feel really alone in the presence of another with who you love and have tension, right? Car rides that feel like, you know, you're, you know, leagues apart and things like that. The reason you feel like that is because there really is a relationship there that's under convulsion. When, when we are in sin, there's tension in that relationship, but we never want to think about the Christian life as something that's popping apart and going back together, popping apart and going back together. So I'll give you another example. Um, I was doing a floor visit once a few years ago in a dorm at school down on campus at Moody, and this lovely young woman said, um, when I sin, I feel like I can't pray anymore. I just freak out, go into the far country for a couple of weeks, and then after a couple of weeks, you know, I, I feel like I can again. So I want to explore that a little bit gently, right? But it's, there's, there's, there's like balm of gentleness there, but there's some counterintuitive stuff there too. It's proud as I'll get out, right? It doesn't strike us at that moment to say, have you ever repented of, of um, these types of actions? So she goes into the far country, and we all, know, we all do things like this. You go into the far country, into the, the bushes, right? Where are you? I'm hiding, I'm afraid and ashamed. I mean, that story's our story. But after a couple of weeks, you know, like, what, why, why can you come back? I should say, well, for, for one, the sting, the like, I can't believe I'm capable of that, um, goes away. And she's, she's been able to, as, she, as, as we would think, right, make some kind of restitution. You kind of build a, build a beachhead of reappropriation to God on your own. You know, I've been a, such a good boy for two weeks. Now I can present myself to God. A, you never need to do that. B, that is, not, that, is, that is not authentic Christian life, right? Right in the midst of our, of our sinning, we're loved, right? Right in the midst of all of that tension. There, there's, there's not breaking apart of relationship. We're in Jesus Christ, right? Strong as death, just good things to think about live into. Does that help? So let's, let's talk about, let's move into th this threefold office. We obviously won't finish today, but that's okay. It's, it's meant to be, it's meant to be next time anyway. If, if we, if we track the life of Jesus Christ, right now we're saying he's ascended into heaven, right? He's at the, where is he? He's at the right hand of the father, not away from us, right? It's better that I go away. I will come to you. I'll be with you. By the way, I, if I go, I'll bring you to where I am, and I will come to you. This ascended, this ascended one who ever lives to make intercession for us, what does that look like? Now we want to start talking about Jesus Christ is, was, still is, evermore will be, prophet, priest, and king. If we're baptized into him, in his death and resurrection, we're baptized into the totality of who he is. 
we now partake of his mission, right? It's a co-mission, it's not a delegation, right? He doesn't say, off with you now, <laughs> go on. Um, I'll be with you always, right? Apart from, apart from the vine, the branches can do nothing. You must abide in me. This is my mission to the world. When we're talking about who Jesus Christ is and us in him, now we're talking about what does it mean to live out the Christian life and what does it mean for the church to be, right, the church? If Jesus Christ is prophet, priest, and king, always what we want to get at is what does it mean to be baptized into this one and a company, if you will, of uh, an incorporation, right, an embodiment of uh, a royal prophetic priesthood, right? That's what we're talking about. One, I'm right here on the point two. One of the really great theological contributions of the church is to think about Jesus Christ's ministry and life um, in light of those three um, primary office bearers in the Old Testament, prophet, priest, king, right? Jesus Christ is Messiah, anointed one. That's what that means, right? Mashiach means anointed one. We see that when he presents himself for baptism in the Jordan, right? He is not acquainted for the first time by, by the, with the Spirit, but the Spirit rests upon him, and it's an anointing, it's a commissioning, right? Now he's undertaking this office. Jesus Christ is anointed. Anointed to be who? The Messiah, the Savior, prophet, priest, and king. All those offices in the Old Testament are messianic offices. Right, the, the priesthood is messianic. The, the 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 office of prophet messianic, the kingly office messianic. Right, you 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 might think here, you know, Moses, Aaron, and David, right, messianic offices. This does a whole lot of things. Um, one is it helps us to really think about um, the kind of irreducible Jewishness of Jesus, which is again just so so important. By the way, that's a mood. Right, to, to think otherwise. That's a mood that's always lapping at the church. Um, you guys know who Marcion is? It's an old ancient heretic, right? Who just said, man, the God of the Old Testament is just a God of law and, you know, goat blood and, you know, burnt heifers. And you guys know, you guys know how that goes, right? Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And the God of the New Testament, Jesus is love and grace and peace. He's unlike very much. He came to contradict that God of the Old Testament. And so what we should really do is lop off the Old Testament. Um, that's, boy, if you get, you know, you, you guys, some of you who study theology, people like Adolf von Harnack and say, the, 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 the early church should have done this. The Reformation should have done this. Now we must do this. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. You know, so one of the, in Germany's heyday and the, Theological School of Berlin, one of their great professors is known for saying, you know, there's more grace at revelation of God in Beethoven's Fifth Sonata than that whole stinking mess, which is the bloody, gory mess, which is the Old Testament. Get rid of it. Doesn't tell us anything about who God is. We can't know who God is apart from <laughs> the Jewishness of Jesus Christ who fulfills that mission, right? He's savior of the world because he is the true fulfiller of Israel's vocation and mission. He's that one, right? It means everything to us. Um, we will not understand the gospel outside of that. We cannot. 
You know what else that does? Let me just say this. This is fun, fun stuff to think about because you know we wrestle with this stuff, right? We talk a lot about diversity and that's a good thing to talk about for sure in terms of you know, the, the multi-ethnicity of the church and so on and so forth. But if we don't think well theologically about that, we'll just never get to it, right? The Jewishness of Jesus tells us, you know, in the life, it's Israel to the nations, right? One to the many. It's Christ to the multitudes. It, scripture is always one to many. If you start with the many, you, you never get to the one, right? You've got to start there. You've got to start there. Now you can really start to talk about it. This. Have you guys ever thought one of the things we do uh, at the Lord's table is we partake of the blood of Jesus Christ, right? One of the things that's happening there is God is reconstituting our bloodlines. <laughs> we never get to valorize or worship uh, our ethnicity, our heritage. As wonderful as it is, right? You get, I'm a Swede, man. I'm proud of it, right? But I never get to make that the thing. It's not a category of humanness. It's never anything like that. There's actually a, an affirmation. You can celebrate it, but it has to be relegated there. That's one of the things, actually, that's so significant about the Lord's Supper. He's reconstituting our very bloodlines. <clears throat> I'm over on the top of whatever that page is because I didn't number these. Sorry about that. Ancient Israel's offices, let's think about them. They're distinguishable, right? They have their own characteristics, their own, their own um, functions. They have their own dress, right? Their own clothing. Think about you know, the priesthood, for instance. They're distinguishable. They're divisible, very much so. Right? It doesn't work out well for Hezekiah when he tries to be a priest, right? It just does not go well. There's anticipations, and you do see this, there's anticipations of, of bringing together of offices, right? But there isn't, there, there isn't a full, we're, we're waiting for our Lord Jesus. By the way, Melchizedek, right? That king of Salem, that high priest who Abraham bears homage to. You see things like this. Um, but these offices are divisible, yes? And they're also, and this is huge, they're abstractable from their persons. So, you know, I'm Benjamin the high priest, right? One day I go into retirement and I go into the priestly locker room and I take off my, you know, holy unto the Lord, my ephod. I go home that day and I'm not a priest. I'm a priest emeritus, right? And there's a successor to that office. The person and the office are abstractable. What we're going to see in Jesus Christ is he, he, he not only fulfills these offices, he transforms them. So he's not only, you know, the greatest of, you know, in degree relative to, you know, Moses, Aaron, David. He's, he's in terms of kind, right? It's not only an issue of degree, it's, a, it's an issue of kind. He is transforming, he's fulfilling these offices. What does he do? He joins them together in his person. Right? So we're never thinking about the office of Jesus apart from his person. We're not doing that. He joins them together in his person and joins them together forever. Right? He's, a, he's, a, he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Right? There's no end to this. There's no end to his prophetic and kingly office. Um, he doesn't grow old and doddery in these things, which is huge for us. 
We don't have three messianic offices in Jesus Christ. We have one office of saviorhood now that is shaped and given content and substance, you know, um, here. He's our prophet. He's our priest. He's our king. And he saves us to the uttermost this way. Now, we think about office and person and how he brings them together. Think about this. Jesus is the messenger, right? Um, that fulfillment of Moses. There'll be another, says Moses. Listen to him, right? What's the substance of his message? I am, right? I am. That is categorically not the case when you think about the Old Testament prophetic office. Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, they don't come uttering I am statements. They do not do that. Thus saith the Lord, for Jesus is thus saith me, right? In the authority of my Father. He's the messenger. He is the message. He's the very substance of the message. He's that. He's transforming this office. <clears throat> He's our real true priest. He's the priest and the sacrifice. Old, old language, right? Priest and victim. He's both of these things. You, will you, obviously, you never see that in the Older Testament, obviously. Jesus Christ is the high priest who oversees his own self-offering. He's that one. He's transforming, again, transforming that office. And then we talk about king. He is the victor, you might say, and the very substance of that victory, or I think it was Father Matt. He's talking about kingdom. Um, Otto Basileia is huge in the theological tradition, right? The kingdom, Jesus Christ is the kingdom, right? So he doesn't come as a travel agent and say, there's a kingdom, I can tell you how to get there, right? It's over my shoulder, you know? 200 yards that way, hang a left, you know, you'll find it. Um, he is the inbreaking of the kingdom, right? To enter into the kingdom is to enter into Jesus Christ. That's why you can't, you can't discern the kingdom at, at, at distance from Jesus Christ. You have to enter into the, the one who is Autobesilea. He's that one. And he's transforming these offices. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to use some Calvin quotes as we go through because he's, he's just known as really kind of giving classic shape to this. But what I want you to see is, um, man, this is just really good, cool biblical theology, systematic theology. Um, talking about the threefold office is just a great test case for that. And it's also, you know, we want to talk about what it means for us to be fully, I like evangelical better than Protestant, right? Fully gospel people, um, heirs of the 16th century, some of the things that happened there, fully Catholic people, right? Um, this was a big issue um, in the Reformation in terms of, um, you know, what the 16th century reformers were saying wasn't happening in late medieval Western theology, what wasn't in the church, what wasn't happening. But I don't want to just keep it there in a 16th century thing. I want to, I want to talk about what, what does this look like for us when, when we don't get that Jesus Christ is prophet, priest, and king? What does it look like for, you know, people in 2020? So let me give you this quote, and then I want, I want to talk this through. Calvin says this. Hear the, hear the pastoral oomph of it. It's really sweet. In order that faith, your faith, my faith, might find a firm basis for salvation in Jesus Christ and rest in him. 
Not go to sleep, not sleepy time in him, right? But vigorous Christian faith that isn't tumultuous, right? Real rest. This must be laid down. The office enjoined upon Christ by the Father consists of three parts, he says. It's one office, right? Three aspects. He was given to us to be prophet, priest, and king. He says, yet it would be of little value to know these names without understanding purpose and use. The papists, 16th century stuff he's talking about, use these too, but coldly and ineffectually, they don't know what each of these titles contains. He says, if you don't know what each of these titles contains, your faith won't have a firm place to rest in Jesus Christ, right? So here's some of the things he's thinking about, but I want to, I want to update these. <clears throat> and I don't know if you guys know me well enough yet, but um, I'm going to, I have a pretty high estimation of Rome, actually. Um, so I, I'm, I'm in no mood to, to slam there, but I want you to see what's going on. And then I want to say, how might we think about us here? <clears throat> Calvin's thinking about something like this. The prophetic office. First of all, he's saying preaching in the church. In the, in the 16th century, there's a famine of preaching in the church. The church has gone real quiet, right? In terms of proclamation, catechesis, so on and so forth. It's gone real quiet. There's a misunderstanding of the prophetic office there, right? So even when he would talk about um, the priesthood, right? He'd say, man, there's not a whole lot of preaching going on. There's a whole lot of Eucharistic stuff going on, but it's not undergirded and grounded by preaching. Right, that's a problem. <clears throat> Another thing for him is he would say, um, the, the magisterium continues to coin new doctrines. And so whenever, whenever Jesus Christ isn't that last word, right, book of Hebrews, first three chapters, that, that stuff. When he's not that, um, wherever, we're, wherever we continue to coin new doctrines, um, our, pl our, our faith doesn't have a firm place to rest. Does that make sense? I'll give you, it's not 16th century, but I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, boy, 20th century. We're coming out, we're coming out of, um, we're coming out of World War II. And, and man, that's rough. It's rough on the church. The church has a hard time in World War II. And a real unecumenical moment happens with, you know, bodily assumption of Mary, right? So now you imagine you're a faithful person and you hear, you have to believe this in order to be faithful. And you say, I did not know that, right? I've, I actually have never believed that. And I don't know where I would ground that and find that in Holy Scripture. Calvin says, that's the kind of stuff that makes you, that makes it so you don't have, your faith doesn't have a firm place to, to rest. And say, that's about the prophetic office. Is Jesus the definitive word? Or are there words that come after and behind Jesus? Now, Update that for me, 2020. Where would we struggle with that? Where is Jesus not the definitive word for us? Or the last word? Low-hanging fruit, man. But yes, <laughs> that's huge, isn't it? We don't, we, would you guys agree? Um, we have, um, of course, we care a ton about culture, right? The life of the world. Is Jesus Christ, does he have a lordly word for the world? Or does Jesus have a provisional world that culture gives its finality to? If, if that's the case, then our faith doesn't have a firm place to rest. And if you guys, lots of you went to Wheaton and you, Christian schools, I know, I teach, as you guys know, I talk with students all the time who say, I'm so confused. I'm so, I'm afraid. What is going on? 
right? Where is that lordly word that the church hears that she can rest on? And where that isn't, is there a firm place for faith to rest in the lordship of Jesus Christ? If scripture is an endless provisional word that culture has to give its, you know, imprimatur to, that's what we, where we struggle big time. Then we're actually, we're not free to be in our culture for the life of the world. We're actually captive to it and scared to death of it. So maybe you can think like this. Um, Jesus says, go in, great commission, right? Go into the world teaching everything that I taught you. Because he's, he's a true prophet, right? I'm older than you guys. So, you know, I've, I've you know, some of my own theological early schooling was, I, I saw a, a vision that looked something like this. Go into the world arguing about everything. The gospel is one big argument. Go in and fight about everything, right? The mood of theology done in, in, in kind of the mood of contention. Generally, generally speaking, right? If that's, if that's a generation gone by, this pendulum swung a long way, right? We do not do that. Now I, w I would suggest to you that we do something generally more like this. Go into the world being incredibly slow and um, what? Fearful to speak a word of God about anything ever. Listen, listen to the world, be catechized, and then tell the world without any truth that you love them. That's an absolute handing over, right, um, of the prophetic office. Does that make sense? <laughs> and when we do that, right, um, we actually, and, and it, it puts itself out there as benign, but it's actually, it's, 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 it's a hateful thing, right? It's a hateful thing to do. But what it does to us is it saps our courage, right? It saps our, it, it, dis, it discourages us. Do you guys want to say anything about that? I see you, you're nodding. I ten, do, you, do you see these things? It's quite, quite um, apparent to me, at least, um, things I struggle with. Think about the priestly office. Calvin would say, what's going on in, the, um, in 16th century parlance is, Rome's generally thought about the Levitical priesthood as being abrogated by Jesus and then now instantiated in another office. It looks a lot like that. It's a mediatorial, um, uh, sacrificial office. But it's also been taken from um, the people of God and, and kind of, you know, monopolized. It's been held by a clerisy, right? There are priests but we don't have a priesthood of believers, right? So now Peter isn't in, in any sense a priest. He's beholden to a priest, but isn't himself one. Does that make sense? <clears throat> now, as this has happened, Calvin would say, there's been a multiplication of mediators here. And this is one of these cases where, you know, less is more, right? If, if there's one mediator between God and man, and we're multiplying those mediators, what we're doing is we're undermining our place to rest. In Jesus Christ, right? Now we've got anxiety, so on and so forth. Update it for me. What do, what do, you, what do you see um, in 2020, how we might, you know, Calvin says, if you think about these things without understanding coldly and effectually, how might we think coldly and ineffectually about the priestly office of Jesus? Yeah. 
about this. I'll give you a couple of things to think about. To the extent that, that, that we um, misunderstand what's going on here, this would be, this is where evangelicals sometimes really struggle, is we have a distant Jesus, who's our high priest. But priesthood, you know, not only the priesthood of believers, the priesthood of clerics, right? Boy, even that word, right, sometimes is tough for evangelicals, priests, there aren't any priests. There are no priests, right, no priests. Well, priests, right, priests at Church of the Resurrection, um, they, don't, they don't corner the market there, but they actually um, are, are intended to catalyze the priesthood of believers, right? So we're still missing that priesthood of believers. And when, when we miss the priesthood of believers, think about what, what, we, what we tend to miss. We don't, we don't want to do this. It's not like we're trying to do this, but we will. Is there a sacrifice to be made in the Christian life? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, right? The, the calves of your lips and your hands and your lives. Um, do we have priestly duties? To the extent we miss that, we have, we have, uh, we have a life that does not have the ability to think about the Christian life in terms of cross-bearing and sacrifice. Does that make sense? Sometimes people think about, let's, let's talk about, and we'll get back to this at length, but I just wanna put these out there for you now. Um, one of the things that priests do is they're intercessors, right? They're intercessors. And so one of our priestly offices are, is, is, that, is that we act as intercessors, right? Sin, rupture, disruption, it, you, know, you know what it does. It, when, you're, when you're living in such a way as that, you know that you're kind of scurrying along the shadows and the, you know, the, the floorboards of life like a little rat, right? You know how that is with people you love. Gosh, I haven't heard from so-and-so, my good friend, in three weeks. I wonder what's going on. Right, so often it's, I'm struggling, and when I struggle, I do this, right? Intercession brings people into the life and the light and the warmth of Jesus Christ, right? We intercede for one another. We learn to hear, we'll talk way more about this, but we learn to hear confessions, right? So think about what's happened in, in the evangelical tradition. We've often said priesthood. We don't like priests. <laughs> I'm not a priest, there are no priests. I have no cross-bearing to make. I, am, I have no one to confess to, right? Think about how important that is. Like someone like, take Luther, for instance, right? Reformer, he, he saw his confessor, Johann Bugenhagen, every week his whole life, right? Because he knew um, that if he were left alone um, with his sins, or as he confessed his sins merely to him, you know, God and him privatized that, he knew that the devil had a, a way of throwing them back in his face, right? He thought it was so important to be, to entrust himself with someone trusted here. So we'll talk about what this might look like. Not, you know, go and bleed all over anyone you can find indiscriminately, right? Be an exhibitionist. No, no. But he knew that to entrust himself with another was to, um, disempower the darkness, right? To bring it out into the light where it cannot flourish, it cannot grow, it, you know, it, it's, it's dissipated even, even in that. 
and then for another to proclaim the gospel, not only right to four or 500 people, but to bring the realities of the gospel home to you, right? When, when we miss out on a, on, a, on a priesthood and our participation in Jesus Christ's priesthood, we learn how to proclaim the gospel one to another. And we learn how to hear and, and hold well um, confessions to one another. So it, 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 it pulls apart the body of Jesus. Does that make sense to you guys? Again, I'm a professor. You guys, most of you, you know, you, you, you've lived in these things. You know how this goes. My friend said X to me. I don't know what to say. <laughs> what on earth would you do? Because culturally, we've already, we hear all the time, like, well, whatever you do, I mean, don't, don't bring a lordly word into that. I mean, how crass can you be, right? Never do that. Um, and by the way, don't proclaim the gospel. In, in the dark, you know, don't do that. Don't hear a confession. And so what happens is, the strength and the courage of the body of Jesus Christ is dissipated, right? What, what it ends up doing is that very thing that Calvin says, it's not that place for us to rest firmly in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense for you guys? Now the kingly office. We still have like, we have five minutes? We'll go back and hit these harder, but think, think about them over the week and we'll get back at them. Jesus Christ is king, right? Or is that, you know, that first confession of the church as the first thing that the church ever confessed? Um, three words, right? Jesus is Lord. The only Lord, right? Nero's not Lord. Caesar's not Lord. Um, Napoleon's not Lord. Um, leftists and rightist politics aren't Lord. Um, all of these things, right? Where the, where the kingly office of Jesus Christ isn't isn't understood, a couple of things will happen. But but they'll, but there'll be um, there'll be the, the church binding itself to political entities, right? Which was huge in the 16th century. It's huge now, right? It's huge now. Um, it's not that we're not political people because we worship a king who has instantiated a kingdom. But it's just that his kingdom's equal. It's embedded in the world, but it's equidistant from the kingdoms of the world and the, and the, and the political structures that, that are in the world. What it's meant to do is liberate us from the world so that we can actually engage in the world. Does that make sense? To the extent that that doesn't happen, um, we're kind of dog whistled by the world. But um, how do I want to put this? We lose our swagger. Does that make sense? Not, not, our, not our pretense, right? We're never called to be pretentious or entitled. But as children of the living God, we ought have a little bit of right, holy swagger to us. Don't you think? I think that modern Christians have lost their swagger. Um, and it has everything to do with, is Jesus Christ risen from the dead, king of the world? Right, so good conversations to have aren't, does the church have a future? Until Jesus crawls back into the grave, yes. Does the world have a future apart from Jesus Christ? That's a good question, right? But Christians have become very, very afraid of the world. It has everything to do with this, everything. What do you guys wanna say? Next time, we'll just really, really just punctuate this. And I, I, I'd love to discuss it, because I think that this is just, man, this is so up to date with the things we struggle with.
Who are the priests of our age? For the church. <laughs> yes. Well, that can be, right, specialists, for sure. Um, now, make sure, I want, I want to make sure you hear me and you know, hear what I'm saying, not what I'm not saying. The scientist. The scientist in the priestly lab coat. That's the final word for us, right? Now, you know, hear me on this. That's not like, you know, this is what we should do, right? We ghettoize the church. Don't listen. That's not the case at all. But the issue there is, um, do we know how to hear? And, and by the way, engage and be enriched by, right? Um, that, that part of culture building, right? That part of, part of, you know, be fruitful and multiply, have dominion um, without making it a Lord, right? We don't tend to have that. Um, that, that, is a, that, is, that is one of the priestly office of our day. I would suggest to you that um, a priestly cast of our day is celebrity. Right? More so than the prophets? <laughs> yeah, yeah they're, they're both, for sure. They're both. Um, but that, that too. Yeah. What are you thinking? Yes, and so they're, they're, they're very intertwined, right? Yeah. So there's a prophetic office, but don't think about, in, in Old Testament Israel, don't think about the, the, pro, the priests as, you know, tape over their lips, right? right? When you want to hear the word of God, where do you go? Yeah. You go to the synagogue, you go to the temple, right? right? And what you hear our Lord saying over and over in the Old Testament is, if you don't hear my word, you don't, you don't pre there's a famine of preaching, right? You don't proclaim my word, priests, mm -hmm. your sacrifices stink to me. Not because I don't like them, not because I didn't instantiate them, because now they're actually a mockery, right? So now when you even think about churches, right? The, 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 there are, we had, a, we had a church split here, right? Episcopalianism, don't hear the word. They're highly sacramental. Right. Don't hear the word. Part of the priestly office, right? The, the, the word grounds, right? The table, for instance, grounds that where there's not word, whatever that is, boy, you're, right? Um, so yeah, there's, it's true of us that wherever there's a vacuum, right, we'll fill it, we'll fill it. So if we don't have priestly, kingly, um, prophetic office, we're gonna find it, for sure. Um, darn it, I wanted to leave you with something and I just, it's here and gone. Um, let me say this, maybe. Um, I don't know if you've ever read Life Together, Bonhoeffer. 
one of the one of the um, things he says is um, Protestants evangelicals really need to recover um, the confessional. Mm-hmm. We actually have it here, right? Mm-hmm. It's one of the glories of great tradition stuff is they haven't jettisoned these things, but recover the confessional. Mm-hmm. Um, because that too, right, that's, that's an exercise of, of what the prophetic and priestly office looks like. And if you, you know, when you, you guys think about um, the way our liturgy goes in, in any given Sunday and even the whole year, like we've talked about Jesus Christ and our participation in him, the whole church calendar is supposed to teach us that, right? The epiphany, the presentation of our Lord, the baptism of our Lord, that's when we were, right? Um, ascension, Pentecost, um, the long, the long waiting, right, of the green season, ordinary time, anticipation of Advent, the whole church calendar is to teach us that we're actually living into that one who has sanctified time. And then when you think about any given Sunday, what we're doing, we're hearing the word, then we proclaim the word in the form of confession, right, Nicene Creed. Then, um, we can really hit this harder next time, but then, um, we go to table, right? Precipitated immediately by offering, right? Um, and the offerings of the people brought up to table. Table or altar, they both work. Actually, they're both really important, but we'll save that for next time. All of this is so thought through pastorally to, to instantiate to us liturgically and catechetically um, what, what's going on here. Final words? Bless you guys. Have a good week.